Um, really want to welcome you all this morning to church, especially if you're new to church. I'm Steve, one of the leaders here. Um, do you know, we're all, um, we're all changing, whether we know it or not, whether we realise it or not, we are changing. No one's immune, um, just being alive Living in the world, we're being shaped by it. Science says that what we see, what we experience, what we hear is changing our brain cells. You know, it's growing neurons. That's what science tells us. Where somehow our world around us is, is changing us. Changing us in our characters for better or for worse. Who, who are we coming? Who are we becoming? And that's what John is going to be talking to us about this morning, in the passage we're going to read. We're in a series looking at John's first letter to, to the churches. In our passage today, John is arguing that we should be becoming like Jesus. So our subject is living like Jesus in character and action. I want to argue that this is really, really, really important, okay? Why? Because it affects our lives here, positively or negatively. If we follow Jesus, I believe it really will be a blessing in our lives here and now and in the life to come. The trouble is... <laughs> It's so hard, isn't it? And I don't stand here in any shape, you know, of, of being in, a, in a, you know, a, a perfect model to follow at all. But um, nonetheless, I think we can do it as we train ourselves to follow Jesus. Perhaps you've heard of the running program from Couch to 5K. It describes itself as... The 5K training program is based on five weeks of gradual progress that will help transform you from a couch potato to a person who's confident about running 5K. So just like physical training, I believe that with training over time, we can live more like Jesus. But it takes time more than five more than nine weeks by the way but there are great rewards there are great rewards Paul says this rather train yourself to be godly for physical training it is of some value but godliness has value for all things holding promise both for the present life and the life to come you may have heard of Henri Nguyen, the Christian writer. When he gave up his prestigious teaching post at Yale University, like a, it's an American version of Oxford or Cambridge, when he gave that up and went to a care home to look after mentally and physically disabled adults, his younger brother thought, you are wasting your life. What are you doing? But at his brother's funeral, his eyes were opened to his brother's popularity and incredible influence. The number of people who came to his funeral. At the care home, Henri Nguyen 
was given the task of caring for a severely handicapped young man called Adam. Though awkward at first, Nguyen began to experience a deep work of God in his own life through Adam. And he said that caring for Adam gave more benefit to himself than it did to Adam because it changed him. It was the so-called wasting of Henri Nguyen's life that gave him the insight and to began to transform him to be more like Jesus. Transform him inwardly. And that, it was that kind of experience that opened his brother's eyes at his funeral. I wonder who are we becoming? Are we letting the world just transform us into what it wants? Or are we going to be transformed into more like Jesus? So let's read from 1 John. At first it's quite shocking really. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Well, none of us quite do that all the time, do we? Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we're in him, that is Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Ouch. Again, if we claim to know him, we must live like him. None of us do that, do we? John is not saying we have to be perfect. Because in chapter 1, he makes that really very clear that none of us are. That's good news, isn't it? If we claim to be without sin, verse, chapter 1, verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. What is John saying in that passage about living like Jesus, following all his commands? Well, I think what he's saying is that in general our lives begin to need to look like Jesus. See, John had touched Jesus. He had experienced Jesus. He knew Jesus. He knew the love of God in his heart because of that. And it just had to change him. And he's saying, if you know Jesus, it's just got to change you. And John was confident about the people he was writing to. He was confident that they knew God. And he wants you and I to be confident about our relationship with God and to have that hope. But we're going to talk a bit more about that in a couple of weeks' time. Now, moving on again in 1 John 2, and you might find it helpful just to have that kind of available for you. Um, In John's patriarchal world, he writes about different levels of Christian maturity. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. 
I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then kind of bizarrely to our minds, he almost says the same thing again. N.T. Wright says it's so that we might begin to meditate on it and begin to dwell on it and begin to actually get into our heads. So verse 14 he says, I write to you dear children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's Jesus. I write to you young men because you are strong. Because the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. So in other words, young Christians might experience forgiveness. Fathers would know God through their lives and John could look at them and say, yes, I know that you know God. And young men have begun to turn away from things that are destructive and sin and begin to follow Jesus. John Stott writes of this. These three groups represent three stages of spiritual pilgrimage. Children, newborn Christian. Young men, more developed, strong, victorious in spiritual life. And fathers who have the depth and stability of right Christian experience. What we see here is there's meant to be a progression of Christian maturity. Unfortunately, um, how long you or I have been a Christian doesn't necessarily make us mature Christians. And in contrast, becoming like Jesus is a long process to be sure, more than nine weeks. It takes time. None of us will be perfect in this life. Coming back to our subject today, John is expecting Christians to live like Jesus. But how do we do it? It's so hard. Well, many of us feel stuck and feel like we're not progressing. And you would be in good company if that's how you feel this morning. You're not alone. I certainly feel this and at times I feel like it's one step forward and then two back. It's not always that easy. Henri Nguyen had his struggles, absolutely did. We're not alone. St. Teresa of Avila wrote this, perhaps mainly about prayer, but she wrote this. No one is so advanced that they don't have to often return to the beginning. No one is so advanced that they don't often have to return to the beginning. But my point this morning is that there is real value. This goal of living like Jesus has so much reward and benefit and value. And we can, with training, begin to look more like Jesus. The key is not trying harder, but training. Placing ourselves where God can change us through his Holy Spirit. It will mean, mean dealing with sin in our lives. What is sin? Sin is so much more than bad outward behaviour or breaking a moral code. God originally made men and women in his image. We're called to be image bearers. We're meant to show people God, pointing people to God. But not doing this on our own, doing it with him. When we're not being image bearers inwardly and outwardly, that 
is when we're sinning. So let's read John's letter again. He talks about three areas of sin. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. What does John mean by the world in this passage? I mean, Ron quoted from the gospel. It's different. It means John meant something different here to what he meant in the gospel. Because John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. And yet here we're being told not to love the world. Confusing, isn't it? John 3.16 says, so God loved, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's an ongoing, abundant life. And I think in today's passage, John means the complete contrast to that. The complete contrast to the life and abundant life that we have in God. N.T. Wrights puts it this way, the world as it places itself over and against God. That's what John's meaning here. The world as it places itself over and against God. Or if you want a more detailed description, the realm of sin which is controlled by Satan and organised against God and righteousness. That's the world. So how do we train ourselves to live like Jesus? Well, I, there are lots of ways, but I'm just going to simply give you three this morning. The first way is not to be over intense and trying, but instead to be immersed in Jesus and his abundant life. This, I think, brings motivation to want to be different. <clears throat> Recently, Sue and I had some lovely days walking along the North Cornell coastal path. I was feeling anxious. I couldn't quite work out why. But I was praying to God about it as I was walking along. And somehow I heard these words. Relax in my love. I still hadn't got it because he had to talk to me again. <laughs> After lunch I went to the restroom. I found myself whistling. It took me quite some time to work out what was the tune that I was whistling? What were the words? I'd not sang it recently or often. In fact, I had to Google the words to get them right. It was clearly something that was not in my conscious brain. It was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. The song. Shall I sing it? <clears throat> Go on then. White, white as the ocean, high as the heaven above, deep, deep as the deepest sea is my Saviour's love. Okay, we'll stop there. <laughs> but it wasn't something that I... But the Saviour's love, and I spent the whole of the afternoon, the wide ocean, 
along the Cornish coastal path, thinking, God loves me. He loved me so much that he just spoke to me in that restroom. And he wants to do that for you and I. That's the first way. The second is to not be so wrapped up in the busyness of our world. Many have noted it's not doubt that, people, that keeps people from God. Or from us, from experiencing God. But distraction. The constant use of phone, social media, music and the many other things that fill our lives with distraction. We're being swept along by the tide or a rip current and we don't really realise it. We need to intentionally slow down and practice spiritual practices of solitude, silence and rest with God. Jesus often withdrew to spend time with Father, God. And this was how he was able as a, to be the perfect human, human being. Because he spent time with Father. It, you see, it's in this place of withdrawing from our busyness that our deeper motives, our drives can be revealed. That's what Henri Nguyen found when he was looking after the severely disabled Adam. See, many Christians, me included, have begun to deal with behaviour on the outside, but not on the inside. For example, as Christians, we've learned to largely control our anger, but inside we're resentful and maybe out of hurt gossip about people. It is in withdrawing that we begin to understand why we're angry. It's in withdrawing from the busyness we can begin to understand. And God reveals to us our subconscious drives. What are they really? And it's in that place of love that we realise Jesus is enough to deal with those things. So that's the second. The first one was love. The second one is withdrawal. And that inward journey, beginning to look at our lives. The third way is, is you might describe as the outward journey. It's being in the world, but not of it. We need to apply the antidotes, the antidotes to sin in our lives. In the passage, there were three areas of sin, weren't there, that John outlines? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I remember Rick Warren saying that what we need is the antidotes. Going in the opposite spirit and action. Lust of the flesh, or really better, is sinful desires. Many of our desires are okay. But what we're talking about here is over-desires. You see, sex is a God-given desire. But outside of God-given boundaries, it becomes self-gratification rather than perhaps the powerful force to bring so, something so much greater. Rich, fulfilling, faithful love. Sin is destructive. Sin seems lovely at the time, but down the line it is destructive. The antidote is integrity to the, uh, sinful desires. Are we the same in private as the public image? 
Mark Batterson, the Christian leader and writer, says one of his goals in life is that the people who know me best respect me the most. The people who know me best respect me the most. With sinful desires, we need to take that longer view than the moment. What will be the story of our lives? A string of broken relationships. Few people trusting us and respecting us. Instead, integrity builds a story worth that we would be happy to tell about our lives. Mentoring and accountability can help. Do we have people in our lives who are going to ask us those hard questions and who know what's really going on in our lives? The second one is lust of the eyes, greed, materialism. And instead what we need is the antidote, which is generosity. I find it fascinating that Jesus talks about money in a quarter of Luke's gospel. It wasn't that he needed money. He didn't need a new roof for the temple. He didn't need a new mobile phone or plane. But he talked about money. Why? Because he was after you and I becoming people of love. He knew generosity would break sinful selfishness in our hearts. Studies have shown that those who are generous and open-handed rather than stingy are much happier people. Even in this life, it holds value. And then thankfulness, that we can just be really thankful for what we have. Happier those who are content with what they have. Then there's pride of life, power, status. The antidote is humble service. Even in secret, when nobody knows, that's where it gets really hard. And you think, mm, why am I doing this? And, and you have to begin to deal with that safe self. That's what Henri Nguyen found. Away from the limelight of speaking at a prestigious university, instead looking after somebody who was mentally handicapped. Again, thankfulness. We think we're proud about something, but actually so much of who we are is our DNA, our upbringing, the opportunities in life. Yes, there is a component of what we've brought to the table, but so much is not. And to be truly thankful. And even those that are proud and boastful, do we like them? No. So actually... They don't really build very, very good, deep relationships and so perhaps are not as happy. Again, value in life of humility that we value. Those antidotes, integrity, generosity and service. I wonder how you, it lands with you this morning. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I'm failed with that. But that's the beauty of the cross, isn't it? Jesus forgives us. Do you know, Jesus loves you and is cheering you on this morning. Like a parent rejoicing at a child's first steps. Parents don't criticise their children for the, when a child falls over, do they? They celebrate that progress, that very first step. Then 
Not perfection, but progress. And they help the child up to have another go at walking. Jesus wants us to walk better, more like him, living like him. Why should we bother? Again, value in this life and in the next. I finished with Paul. He says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things. Holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. We're going to just have a short reflection here for a few moments. What is the one thing that's really spoken to you? And um, so let's have the next slide. It gives us some questions, a summary. What is God saying to you this morning? Just privately reflect.